Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, that's not a TV show. But it is. But it is. It It is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams. Other than a Viewmaster, you download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like Star Trek, you'll love Inglorious Trexperts, in which our Trexperts... Mark A. Altman and myself, Darren Doctorman, talk Trek every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. What is up, everyone? Welcome to the Rebel and the Rogue podcast, where we talk Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars, and maybe other things, but mostly mostly Star Wars, guys. It, we're, we're a Star Wars podcast, so if you don't like Star Wars, I don't know what you're doing here. But I am Bevan, and to my down screen right is my co-pilot. What up, Jason Tobias? What up, everybody? Thanks for joining us today. We're really psyched to not only have an amazing addition to our show in Peter Holmstrom. Say hello, Peter. Hello. Commander. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. We have got American writer, fantasy and science fiction novelist who's written many book series, Mr. Alan Dean Foster. Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here they come. Woo! Alan, in the house. And we're doing our social distancing, everyone. We are doing this over Zoom. We are very safe. Safe and isolated. That's right. In our little corners of the world. Right. All right. Excellent. Alan, we are so happy to have you here. I, I hear you are familiar with Star Wars. Word on the street, at least. Occasionally, yeah. I, my memory is going, but I do seem to have some vague recollection of being involved with a film by that title. <laughs> <laughs> Can you break down a little bit of your backstory for us with Star Wars for the viewers that don't know? Uh, 
I was called in because I had done novelizations of the animated Star Trek TV show. Okay. That was one reason. And some other films, including John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon's student film, Dark Star, which is a, a remarkable little student film. And on the basis of that, and apparently the fact that someone had read a book of mine called Ice Rigger, an original novel, uh, which they felt was in the spirit of this new film that George Lucas was making, and they thought that I might be the right person to make a book adaptation of the film. Delroy Books had bought the rights to Star Wars, and I had done all this other work for Delray, so they put me forward as a possible writer of the realization. I was then sent to a meeting with Tom Pollock, later president of Universal, I believe, who was George's lawyer at the time, to vet me and uh, presumably uh, make sure that I wasn't a secret axe murderer or something like that. Very important. Yeah, I passed that, I guess, and they then sent me out to Industrial Light and Magic, which at that time was in a rented warehouse in Van Nuys, about 10 minutes from where I'd grown up. So I knew exactly where it was. And I drove out there and uh, met George. He had some time for me, which surprised me very much because I know what's involved in making a film and uh, directors don't have any time for anything, um, Mm. including sleep and eating. But he still made time for me. We had a very nice chat. And when I wasn't talking to him, I got to wander around Industrial Light and Magic, which uh, was very interesting at the time. Met some people. And basically what I wanted to do was meet George, make sure that we were on the same page, or at least I was on his page since it was his page, and go home and start work because that's what I did. And this guy wandering around calls me over. He says, hey, you want to see something really neat? And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. What? So he pulls me over. He says, this is the first computer-controlled camera in the history of motion pictures. And I developed it. It was John Dykstra. Mm-hmm. Wow. And of course, I have no interest in that because I was stupid. <laughs> And wandered off and watched them shoot some green screen shots of the Millennium Falcon with the computer camera. Uh, You you look back on these things and you say, well, you really should have paid more attention. Mm -hmm. There were no cell phones in those days, much less cell phone cameras. So I didn't take any pictures of anything, which I probably wouldn't have done anyway. That's, That's not light. But it was a very interesting afternoon, and I got the job to do the book adaptation of the film and to write a sequel book Mm. because George wanted some additional material available for fans of the film, assuming that the film produced fans. And he wanted that available so that there would be material like that for people to read so that would keep them involved with Star Wars till he could make another picture. The only restriction that he put on me for writing Splinter, which was, of course, an original novel, was that it had to be a story that could be filmed on low budget. Mm. His idea being that if Star Wars was neither a huge success nor a colossal failure, he could make a cheap second film utilizing as many props and costumes as possible from the first film. So that's why Splinter is set on a fog-shrouded planet, and a lot of it takes place underground, cuts down on the need for expensive sets, no CGI in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, couldn't use the character of Han Solo because Harrison Ford had not signed on for the use of his likeness or any additional future projects at that time, which meant no Chewbacca, at least at that time. Nowadays, you can write a whole novel about Chewbacca's second cousin's uncle. Uh, <laughs> but at that, 
I've read that, that novel. I've read it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And uh, so that's what I did with Splinter. And the adaptation was accepted as I turned it in. And Splinter was accepted as I turned it in, except that George needed two cuts. I forget what one of them was, but it was small. But the big one was that the book opened with a fairly complex battle in space. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like battles in space as much as the next guy. Sure. Which is what forces Luke and Leia down on this planet, Mimmon. And George said, you need to take that out. And I said, why? And he said, it'd be too expensive to film. Mm-hmm. So it's an interest, interesting way to approach writing a novel. I had to have two things in mind at the same time. Yeah. You know, I to help contextualize this for our listeners, uh, George was planning, you know, the novel was part of the marketing push for the movie itself. The, the novel came out six months before the movie even premiered. So they were getting reviews of the novel and the film, essentially, six months before the movie was even uh, put into theater. So it was, y- your job was exceedingly important in the sense of like, if the novel did terribly and for whatever odd reason, then the movie might've, might've had, it might've had a detrimental impact on the film itself. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about like, you know, when you're, you've done so many novels, you've done so many original novels, you've done so many adaptations of, of movies. Like what is the process of pitching for, for doing a movie adaptation? Well, I never pitched for one. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) That's easy. (laughs) It's a question I get all the time because there are people who would like to do this sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And as with so many things in life, the things that you really enjoy and that really benefit you, you you didn't look for them in the first place. You weren't looking for them. I was never looking to do movie novelizations. Mm -hmm. These things came my way, uh, starting with a book called Luana, uh, which was also Del Rey, which had been purchased uh, prior to Judy Lynn Del Rey and Lester Del Rey taking over editorship of the Ballantine science fiction fantasy line. It had been purchased while Betty Ballantine was still in charge there. Uh-huh. And Luana, Luana was a, uh, a really awful Italian movie. You get a chance to see it for free, don't do it. <laughs> but it's, it's a waste it. of your... It's a waste of your airtime. It incorporates, it's a cheap, low-budget film, incorporates all the worst aspects of Italian filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, the hero has three different hair colors in his hair, and it's supposed to be a female Tarzan story. Mm-hmm. And the people spend most of the time just wandering around in, in jungle looking for the main character, Luana, who's actually played by this diminutive little Vietnamese gal, uh, Mei Ling, I think was her name. And... I couldn't do anything with it. I could talk more about Luana, but this is a Star Wars podcast. So (laughs) anyway, on the basis of that, I was asked to do the novelization of uh, Carpenter and O'Bannon's Dark Star. And then from that, that led to the Star Trek logs, Mm -hmm. which ended up being in books. And that was when, you know, while I was doing those, I got asked to do the Star Wars project. So that's how it all got started. But I didn't go looking for any of that. It just sort of came my way, possibly because I have a master of fine arts and film from UCLA. Mm-hmm. So Judy Lynn, who gave me the Luana job, figured, well, I must at least know what a screenplay looks like right. and, what to, and what to expect from it. And everything just kind of built up from there. Before I forget, I get all asked these questions all the time, as you doubtless know. 
And I finally thought, well, you know, this is all history of a sort. So I put it all down in a book called The Director Should Have Shot You, which will be out, which will be out from Centipede Press later this year. Amazing. It's nice. not, not just about my work with Star Wars, but all of those other novelizations that uh, you alluded to. That's wonderful. So Excellent. Finally, when I die, which will be shortly, ah. uh, people will, uh, well, logically speaking, yeah. people will, you know, will have the book. And if somebody has a question about well, what was working with Vin Diesel really like, they'll be able to go to the book instead of exhuming my body and trying to give electroshock to what's left in my brain. <laughs> oh, man. I, th- I love that title. The director should have shot you. <laughs> yeah. Comes, yeah that's, that's... comes from a real incident. Really? Oh, you want that explanation? Yeah, yeah, sure. It has nothing to do with Star Wars. It actually has to do with the Chronicles of Riddick. But this is mm. not a Chronicles of Ready podcast. I don't want to digress all over the place, which Please. I can do for we're days. Th- this whole podcast oh, okay. is a digress. All right. Well, we're here for you, Alan. Yeah, we're uh, here for you, Alan. You go into it, man. I mean, I want you to plug this too at the end. We no, want people I'm to know about this. You. This is your uh, this is your podcast. But uh, since you ask, uh, I was asked. I was given the job of doing for a book adaptation of Chronicles of Riddick, and in the course of doing that, my agent got a call from Universal, said we'd like to send. Uh, Mr. Foster up to Vancouver, which is where they were shooting all the live action stuff, for a couple of days uh, to walk around the lot and see what's going on and talk to people. We think it'll make for a better book. And I didn't want to do that because I've been on movie sets. And if you've been on a movie set, it's very boring most of the time. I mean, they shoot 20 seconds of footage and then everybody stands around fumbling around for four hours trying to set up the next shot. Uh (laughs) I'm familiar. Okay. Okay. Well, actress, you would be. So they were very insistent. And I thought, well, it's two days in Vancouver. It's not two days in Keokuk. So I went up. And the first night I had a midnight dinner with David Tui, the director writer, uh, who somehow managed to finish his food. I knew what he was going through. So it didn't bother me that he didn't have much time to chat. And the next day I wandered around the lot and they put me in the film. I'm in the film. I'm in one of the crowd scenes, makeup and costume the whole bit. That was kind of fun. And then the next day, I'm doing the same thing, essentially. And a runner comes over and says, Vin would like to talk to you. So I'm like, oh, God. Because Vin Diesel was one of the executive producers on the film, too. I got to go talk to an actor. I wasn't doing anything else. So we went to his production trailer. We go into the trailer. And one entire wall is papered with Frank Frazetta posters. And I thought, wait a minute. This guy's a fan. <laughs> this could be fun. So then I'm led over to the motorhome where he's staying. I go in there and he shows up a couple of minutes later. And he has a copy of the script. And we just hit it off right away. Just right away, just chatting. And he picks up the script and opens it. He's like, you know, would you mind if I asked you a couple of questions about the screenplay? And I said, no, of course not. This is why I don't work in Hollywood or politics. <laughs> and... He did, and he'd ask me a question, I'd say, and I'd answer it, and he'd say, that's exactly what I was thinking. And we'd go on like that for about 15 minutes. We'd complete agreement on the approach to every scene, every character, everything. And then I come home, go back to work. A couple of days later, the phone rings, and it says, my name is, is this Alan Foster? Yes. Uh, I am, I'm not going to name him, Vice President so-and-so from Universal. You're not to have any further contact with anyone involved with the production of the Chronicles of Riddick. You're not to talk to anyone involved with the production of the Chronicles of Riddick. Went on like that for a couple of minutes. 
At which point I interrupted and said, look, I told you not to send me up there. I always go stricter to whatever question I'm asked. And I don't work for you. I work for Random House Publisher. And I hung up on him. Nobody ever called back. <laughs> and I kind of, you know, drugged it off and went back to work. Sometime later, I'm in L.A. in Westwood at the Cheesecake Factory on San Vicente, talking to an old producer friend of mine, uh, William McCutcheon. I told him this story. The guy's got wide, and he said, you did what? And because I had heard that there had been some disagreements on the set between Vin and David, and Vin would invoke me and say, well, the writer of the book agrees with me. And telling this to my producer friend, he says, you don't understand. This is, this is Universal's most expensive picture of the year, costing thousands and thousands of dollars a day to shoot this. They have no time to delay for discussion and argument, none. And he said, Bill did, if I'd had a gun and I'd been the director, I would have shot you on the spot. And wow. that's where the title. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, God. That's a great story, though, and that's a great title. Yeah. I love it. Well, it's in the book, too. So. <laughs> you can reread it. Yeah, I will. I love it. I will. Yeah, that's great. Cool. Alan, I, I have a question for you. You know, obviously, you're dealing, you, you have your own books and your stories and the IP that you've developed yourself and you've written about. What is it like dealing with, because egos run rampant, like you've already mentioned, working in Hollywood, working in politics, egos are something that you have to deal with on a pretty regular basis. When you're dealing with egos the size of, say, directors, director writers, what is it like taking their babies, if you will, and saying, okay, well, you know, do you have the freedom to kind of expand? Do you feel like there were some people that were more like a wet blanket and slamming over you and saying, no, it's got to be like this, it's got to be like, or did you have the freedom to play and really just kind of go into these worlds? Can you expand on that a little bit? It depends on the baby. I'm sorry, director. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, seriously, it depends. Most of the time, the book version of the film is just considered an ancillary right, like selling the right to use pictures of the actors on McDonald's cups and things like that. They don't care. It's, it's very peripheral involvement with the film. And for myself and anyone else who's doing book adaptations of film or TV, this is what you want. You want to be ignored and you do your job and you finish it and you turn it in and the publisher accepts it and you're done. Mm. But every once in a while, somebody will get involved who's connected with the film because in Hollywood, people know that they can't do the sets, they can't do the costumes, they can't run the camera, they can't do the special effects, they can't direct, they can't, but everybody can write. If people will get a chance, they will try to change something. Mm -hmm. And the only time I had a really bad, most of the time they leave me alone. Uh, for years now, I've been at the point to where people know that I'm going to turn in a decent piece of work and they don't have to worry about it and they can concentrate. It's one less thing to worry about while they're doing the film. But every once in a while, somebody will stick a finger in. Uh, for example, I was asked to write a sequel to the film Alien Covenant, which I did the novelization yes. of. And then they decided they didn't want to do a sequel. They thought it might conflict with something that Ridley Scott wanted to do. So they wanted me to write a prequel to Alien Covenant. 
So, okay, this is this is good. This will be between Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Mm-hmm. Doing a lot of a lot of stuff that I'd like to do. So I sent him an outline. <coughs> and they sent it back and said, Well, you can't really do this. Uh, you can't use the aliens in the book. And I'm like, wait, you want me to write an alien book, but the alien can't be in it. And they said, Yes. So Without going on and on about it, I did that and did the best I could. And I can't blame fans for being upset with that aspect of it. It's not what I wanted to do, but I did the best job I could to work for hire. The only really bad experience I had was on Alien 3. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've seen Alien 3, uh, it has a lot of problems. One or two. <laughs> not exactly the best entry in the franchise. But again, I did what I could with it. Uh, I tried, I developed backgrounds for all of these prisoners who are on this horrible prison planet. Uh, I wanted to make them something more than just alien chow. <laughs> a good one. And, and I didn't, I didn't kill Ripley and Hicks. Uh, I rationalized why they're there, but they're not dead, but they can't come out. Uh, I fixed as much of the science as I could, which is a pet peeve of mine. Mm. There's one scene in there where I guess Two people, maybe one of them is Ripley, are on this giant pile of used batteries, and they're looking for some batteries with some juice left in them so they can run their flashlights. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading this in the script, well, it's two, three hundred years in the future, and we're still using D cells. Stuff like that bugs me. It has nothing to do with the storyline, but I try to fix it anyway because it's a pet peeve. And I did the best I could with it, and I turned it in. And the publisher was happy with it, Warner Books. We had a letter back from David uh, Walter Geiler, who was one of the co-producers, said, you can't do any of this. Uh, You need to adapt the screenplay exactly as it is, and we think that will make for a better book. So I held back from saying, well, you know, I've done these books based on work by George Lucas and John Carpenter and James Cameron and uh, Ray Harryhausen, and they all seem moderately happy with what I did. Uh, instead of just saying, I know what I'm doing, you can't do that. It's a work for hire. And you either accept the job with the restrictions that come with it, or you don't take the job. Mm. It's like you're a house painter and you're looking at somebody's new house and you suggest in the Southwest, let's say, maybe a nice beige with some brown trim. And he says, no, I want pink with purple polka dots. And it's like, you either paint it that way or you don't take the painting Mm -hmm. job. And that is a drawback, obviously, novelizations that you understand before you go into it, but you don't take the job. Mm. Right. Did you have the opportunity, Alan, when um, you were talking with George about Splinter of the Mind's Eye, did did you guys kick around a lot of ideas for it? Was it it mostly your story? I mean, did you just kind of say, hey, look, I've got some ideas. I'm going to go run. That was pretty much it. He didn't have time. Yeah. He just, he didn't have time. Whether he wanted to or not, I don't know. But he simply did not have yeah. time. Mm-hmm. He, he put the economic restrictions on me about possibly doing it as a sequel film and keeping budget in mind. But beyond that, it was like, and not being able to use Harrison for uh, Han Solo's character. But beyond that, it was like, you know what Star Wars is. You did the adaptation of the film. Go do a sequel. And that was it. And except for cutting out that first chapter, that's what I did. So 
I'm not boasting or anything. That's just the way it happened. Yeah. You know, back in 1876. <laughs> well, I came across that book. I, I had a job in high school and I came across Splinter in the Mind's Eye. And what I loved about your, your story you weaved in there is obviously as a reader of any kind of fiction, you're always kind of looking at the growth of character and you're looking how these characters grow over time. And from Luke's growth from A New Hope into Empire, there seemed like there was this leap that happened that we just really didn't know. And it's great to have things that happen off the page and it lets you imagine them. But when you have Luke and Leia looking for the Kyber crystal on Mimban and that it enhancing force powers and it giving them healing, that at least gave me a piece, at least in that story of saying, you know what, I can now buy in more that now an empire, he is a little bit stronger. Maybe this thing enhanced or magnified his abilities. And I just, I liked that you bridged this, even it, even if it wasn't intended to necessarily be a bridge. It was going to be the sequel of Star Wars did not do well, but I just think that the book itself was a fantastic addition to the storyline. I consider it a great fun addition to the overall, you know, expansive saga. Well, thank you. Uh, I did, as I always do, the best job I could with what I had, uh, bearing in mind that there were certain things that I didn't know about and possibly George didn't know about because these things evolve through the creative process. For, the, for example, nobody knew, and I don't think George did either at the time, that Luke and Leia were brother and sister. Yeah. So this results in some awkwardness in the book, because at that point, and this goes on actually until the middle of shooting Empire, yeah. uh, at that point it was a three-way, you know, two-way competition, sort of, mm -hmm. between Luke and Solo for the princess's hand. And yeah. fortunately, I was able to keep that sort of flirtation distant and light and it didn't get too heavy in the book which would have made even a bigger problem it's still there but anybody anybody who's watched star wars and have this odd feeling that you three have um you know there's the scene where they swing across the the chasm in the in the death star and leia gives him a kiss for luck and that's that's not a sisterly kiss and then, of course, there's the cut kiss in Empire, which I guess is around about the time George decided that they were going to be brother and sister. Um, so that was dispensed with. And everybody has their own field. Everybody has their own Star Wars. Mm -hmm. No matter how many times you've seen the existing films or read relevant books, everybody has their own personal Star Wars. It's like reading a comic strip and imagining the voices of the characters in your head. And then somebody does an animated version of it, and the voices are never right, because they're not the voices you hear in your head. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with Star Wars. The characters quite seem to react the way you want them to react. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful thing that viewers get so involved with these characters. I mean, these are characters. They're not real people. Yeah, you were, you were mentioning that Delray was reaching out about writing um, uh, additional novels regarding characters, and that's when we lost you, Alan. Right, and I said, no, I kept saying no, and then I got a call one day from Judy Lynn, not Judy Lynn, but uh, the gal who was in charge of editing Star Wars line, because it had become a separate line at that point. I said, would you be interested in doing a bridge novel between episode one and episode two? Because there's not going to be a film there. And Greg Bear's doing the other one. And I said, now that's an interesting idea. I'm not talking about, you know, some bounty hunter off in some other star system. So I did a book called uh, The Approaching Storm. 
approaching. Okay. Damn, we're losing them. <laughs> this is great stuff. Just we're not getting to the good stuff. <laughs> oh, be back. back. Yeah. Okay. Well, you had just uh, you just transitioned to talking about the approaching storm. Right. Yeah. And I was able to, to first of all, it let me do a female Jedi, mm -hmm. Luminara Unduli, and a, a black female Jedi. And I thought, this is a character that I'd really be interested in, in writing about, developing. And also Anakin Skywalker, mm. young Anakin and young Obi-Wan. And all yeah. of that appealed to me because also it is the tie between episode one and episode two. It's not a huge tie, but it is mentioned in the second film that they've come back from this planet, Anison. And so it all, it all works as like, well, it's a little piece of film that never got filmed. Yeah, a lot of fun doing that. I got to do another hut. And my favorite part of that whole book is I got to do a scene uh, dancing with lightsabers. Mm. And I could see that in my mind. And I thought, you always, you always find one thing in a book that you'd really, really like to see, mm. at least one thing. And that was something I wanted to see, and I got a chance to write. Because the thing that always bothered me about lightsabers was that uh, force or no force, you're much more likely to cut your own foot off. <laughs> <laughs> flipping one of those things around. This is not news. Then you are to hurt anybody yeah. else. Yeah. And, or maybe kind of furniture or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but dancing with, dancing with a lightsaber, that would be pretty, at night, that'd be pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. So apologies to all Samoan fire dancers, but that's, <laughs> I got to do so. That's great. Nice. Alan, I have to yeah. ask too, because you, you also came back to do the novelization for The Force Awakens. Right. And, that was a film which, uh, you know, infamously went through many edits uh, leading up to the release of the film. So I'm just I'm curious about the writing process for that film in particular, where you were up against a pretty strict deadline. But also, I imagine you had to do quite a lot of changes in, in leading up to the release. Yes and no. Yes, I had to do a lot of changes, but they really didn't have to do with the changes in the editing of the film. Mm, OK, it had to do with things that I had put in the book that I thought would add Shades of Alien 3, that I thought would add to the reader's enjoyment of the story, and a lot of them got excised. Mm. Again, I have no control over that. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, what were some of the sorry. ideas that you had? Yeah, can you talk about those, Alan, or are you under lock and key? I'm going to now because I don't give a damn anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> into <all> it. Right. <laughs> it's... It's not, I didn't sign any papers. I didn't sign any NDA for that. And it's not, I've just been polite all this time. But it's not like Disney's going to call me to write the next three films or anything. Although I tried with episode nine. Couldn't get anybody to look at the treatment, but I tried. Uh, I did that oh, for yeah? the fans. Oh, well, yeah. That'll be our next question. And, okay. Yep. You, you let us in, Alan. You let us in. <laughs> That's first, cool. But first, but first, but first, tell us what, yeah. Tell us, tell us what more. you got asked. Okay. For example... When Ray and Han and everybody are on the Millennium Falcon and they're trying to get it going again, uh, I always thought, regardless of how it was presented, that the Millennium Falcon was pretty much a, uh, a tough, well-made starship. And that 
it always had more capability, more in the way of capabilities than it looked like from the outside. I mean, Ray calls it a piece of junk in the film. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to get it started again. And basically you have this image of people working with wrenches and screwdrivers to fix a starship. And while this might look really cool for like a blooper, like the blooper from Star Trek where they're shoveling coal into the uh, warp engines. Yeah. <laughs> I thought maybe something a little more sophisticated without, without uh, contradicting anything you actually see in the film or that was in the script might be in order. So I put it in there and I said, uh, you know, you treat the Millennium Falcon like a 1950s Pontiac here. And the comment I got back was, well, that's actually how we think of it. Mm. And at that point, you just kind of throw up your hands and say, okay, work for hire. I'm not going to get any of this stuff in there. I mentioned that bad science, I mean, this is Star Wars. It's, it's science fantasy. It's not science fiction. Right. But still. Um, and so you try to fix those things. What's funny is the main thing that I put in there that I was sure they would cut out would be I worked really hard to fix the star killer weapon. Yeah. Try to make it read like, I mean, I'm researching advanced astrophysics and stuff here, which I can barely understand the words, but I'm trying to make it read like something that might actually work. Not where you're drawing down bits of the sun, which would instantly fry the planet and blow all the atmosphere off in 10 seconds and kill everything on the planet before you could push fire, anything like that. And I did a lot of work into how you would actually go about, based on existing physics, develop something that could blow up a planet. And I started, I ended up with, you know, weird terms like uh, uh, evanescence and things like that, which sounds like FUD, but is actually real physics. Uh, and they left it. It was two pages of this, which most fans probably didn't care about, but they, they left that in. And I think what happened, I don't know this, is that the physics were so complicated that probably <laughs> only half a dozen people on the planet who actually understand it. Uh, I mean, I'm faking it here, but I'm using the right words to fake it. And nobody wanted to stand up and say, well, this doesn't make any sense because then they would look. So they left that and that, you know, that pleased me no end. Oh, there was something else there I should point out in The Force Awakens. As I'm reading the screenplay, Ray gets involved with this real tragic figure named Finn, mm -hmm. who's basically lost his whole life and everything he thought he stood for, and is rebelling against it. And he helps her, and she helps him, and they develop a relationship. And in the rest of the films, that relationship goes nowhere. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Very true. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is, yeah, this is really cool. This is going to be Ray's guy throughout the rest of the films and nothing happened. It just disappeared. And we all know why. Don't have to spell it out. We all know why, but from a story standpoint, that's what would have made sense. And it would have been beautiful to explore. You've got Ray who has force powers, but doesn't know anything about him. And you Finn who is, you know, suddenly rebelling against everything he stood for. You throw two characters together with all kinds of potential emotional conflicts, and, but it never happened. And we all know why. And I couldn't write it. I couldn't write it in the book. Yeah. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, it was a terribly missed opportunity, Alan. I agree. And uh, I don't know if you had the opportunity to read the leaked, if you will call it, uh, Colin Trevorrow Duel of the Fates script. But even in that version, you know, the romantic link goes more towards Poe, mm -hmm. between Ray and Poe. And there's a lot of hinting that never really gets explored. It just... I don't know if, uh, I don't know, uh, the romance of Star Wars. I mean, I think that was one of the strongest parts about Empire. You know, Empire, you, romance is something I think that everybody can relate to, whatever it is, you know. Um, and without it, without that romance in the story, there's, there's an element of human connection that is lost. Um, I, I don't know. We had an episode on that, but I, I totally agree. It was, a, it was a terribly missed opportunity. It was almost like this complete setup. Yeah, and I think, you know, the one that we've discussed is, too, about the last trilogy. Uh, the last trilogy just was lacking a showrunner of some kind just coming in and giving a story arc for all three films. When we feel, I don't know why, I don't know if you know any inside look of why Disney didn't do this. They didn't just hire somebody to helm all three films so you could have consistent storyline and arc ideas throughout all three films. I know why. Oh, why? Because everybody in Hollywood can. Because everybody in Hollywood can write. Yeah. Mm. So why mm. why hire a story runner? We'll do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. We can't mess this up. This is Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. And then you end up with episodes eight and nine. Uh, I give J.J. Abrams props for trying to fix episode eight. I tried to fix episode eight. I wrote a treatment for episode nine, which you may have met, may not have let's, seen. Uh, let's get into it. And it, I tried, I didn't sure, I didn't just ignore episode eight and write in episode nine. I tried to rationalize as much as I could from episode eight into a storyline for episode nine. What happens to Leia's body? What happens to the, the Rebel Alliance, which basically is down to a handful of people, mm -hmm. supposedly. And I posted it on my website, and people have read it, and I'm sure you can find it if you haven't. Uh, it's heavier in story development at the beginning and at the end. And I wanted Luke, who gets a decent death in episode nine. I have him lying on the Imperial planet without going into detail. They basically just killed all the bad Emperor stuff. There is no Snoke because, well, there is no, uh, I'm sorry, Palpatine. wrong Emperor. Thank you. There is no Palpatine. There's just Snoke. And Snoke has clones. Mm -hmm. And he's killing one. And anyway, and I took uh, the character played by Ruth, uh, who they throw in there as a romantic element. Oh, you mean Rose? For Rose, thank okay. you, Rose, thank you. So that, uh, not because she has anything to do with the story, but since we've already dropped Finn as a romantic interest for Ray, we have to do something with Finn, so they throw Rose in there. I make her a hero, a real hero. Mm. All of these things that I'm trying to rationalize through episode eight. And they've, anyway, they've won. They've defeated the bad guys. Uh, Luke has a great fight scene with the Emperor's clones. And he's outside under a tree. And the last word of the treatment that will be the last word of the film is he's dying there and raised there. And he think he's dead, and then he looks up and he says, he's looking at nobody, he says, Aunt Beru. Mm. And that takes you all the way back to the first mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. But, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So that all you were talking about a story runner, Bevan. 
you want to tie all this stuff together because it is supposed to be a continuous story. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody at Disney would look at huh. it. My agent couldn't get anybody to look at it. Uh, that's not unexpected because if somebody looks at it and uses the tiniest fragment from material that they've seen in the furnished film, then you're entitled to claim credit for this and sure. money for that. Sure. So, you know, either they take it whole and they pay you honestly, or they don't go near it. Uh, and in this case, they didn't go near it. But I did that for the fans just to show that there was a way to rationalize a lot of the stuff in episode eight. You have to ignore certain things like John W. Campbell, who bought, who published my first story, was the editor of Astounding Analog for like 40 years. Probably the most influential, most influential science fiction editor in the history of American science mm -hmm. fiction. Once told me when we were discussing my first novel before it was sold, he said, your hero is too powerful. So if you make your hero too powerful, nobody will have empathy for mm -hmm. Mm. I always that stuck with me ever since then. And when you're watching Star Wars and you start seeing people throwing mountains around, it's like, well, if they can do that, they don't need my help. They don't need my sympathy. Yes. Mm. Why should I care? Mm -hmm. And I never, I never forgot that. And there's so many things that you try to fix. This business that some people seem to like of uh, Laura Dern's character redeeming herself, which was really hard to do by suddenly blasting into the Imperial fleet at light speed and blowing them all up. Well, we don't, we don't need starships anymore. Yeah. Yeah. If you can do that, you get an old freighter, and you, you know, with, with AI or at least computer controls and you put it on, you know, set it for hyperdrive and you throw it into whatever enemy ships you want. Nobody gets killed on your side. And people don't think about these things when they're doing the film. Yeah. You get the same thing in Star Trek. Remember Star Trek Into Darkness? Yeah. Mm -hmm. you seen that? Well, Scotty shows up with this thing that looks like an old Electrolux vacuum cleaner. It's about that size. He says, hey, this is my matter transporter. You can use this and go anywhere in the galaxy. And the bad guy, Khan, does use it. And I'm thinking, well, we don't need starships anymore. Yeah. No more Starfleet. Mm -hmm. Nobody thinks the consequences through. Yeah. yeah. So that's my... That's at least one rant. No, I, I, it's, I it's a great point, Alan. It's a great point. I mean, like, this is why I have a, a, I'm even divided on the Superman character to a degree. Superman yeah. is just unbelievably powerful. And yes, you know, the emotional and the psychological and magic, if you will, is how he has been uh, toyed with. But it's tough to be with a character that is too powerful because you don't see flaws. You don't see anything of a reflection of even yourself in the character. Why do people like the hero? Why do people enjoy the hero's journey? Because they wanna see a reflection of themselves somewhere within the character. They wanna see that they have had to overcome obstacles, that they have had to learn new things about themselves. And when you have this character that is all powerful, how do you relate? I mean, it's just, it's tough. It's like, how do you relate to this? It's, it's the argument that we've had sometimes. You know it's a Star Wars podcast about Batman versus Superman. And why has Batman been more relevant to the viewers than, than arguably Superman? Like, why is mm. Batman more financially successful in the box office, arguably, than Superman? It's because Batman is a relatable character. When you're watching, regardless of what you think of the adaptation versus the books, when you're watching Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films, oh. you ache for the hobbits throughout yep. the entire trilogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah because they are suffering and they're having a hard time and nobody has any superpowers. 
and you immediately identify with their struggle. Mm -hmm. And that's what you got with Luke in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Luke's just a regular kid, not particularly good at anything, and you identify with his struggle. Mm -hmm. You don't identify, nobody identifies with Superman. If there was no kryptonite, it would be even worse because then he would, he really would have zero vulnerabilities. Um, well, and I have to say, like, I, I personally have always loved Superman, but uh, what I don't like oh. is, mm. Peter, Peter. <laughs> but what I have always, what I always push back against is, is kind of that silver age mentality of like, let's keep giving him a bigger and bigger bad guy to fight. And then when he overcomes that bad guy, then that becomes the new norm that then they kept having to up. So it becomes this threshold effect where it's just this endless like, and by the end, he's, you know, pushing planets around and just turning back time by spinning the planet around on it on its axis, right? It's like, as soon as you do that, there's nowhere else to go. And just like what you're talking yeah. about, rounding this back to Star Wars, it, it bumped me so much in The Force Awakens when they go to light speed inside of another aircraft. And it's like, but you're in another aircraft. You're just going to explode when you hit the wall. It's just, it's not that hard. And it's, it's, um, it's, and as soon as they do that, then that becomes the new norm that, that they just, you know, there's no more need to like make calculations to go to hyperspace. They can just go anytime and it's fun. It's, mm-hmm. So yeah, there's my minor rant. <laughs> That's your minor rant. Well, that was my problem. That was my problem with Ray. And I know that uh, Jason and I have talked about this a lot with Ray. Like Ray yeah. is somebody that I never, like people were like, oh, you're a female. You're going to love Ray because she's a female. She's the first female Jedi. And I'm thinking, no, Ahsoka Tano is, was, was there before. That's female, last I checked. But like mm-hmm. people were like, oh, you should love Ray because she's a great female Jedi. And, but the, my problem with Ray from the beginning is that she just seemed to be good at everything. And I didn't, I didn't know how to relate to somebody like Ray when she doesn't seem to have, like she, not only was she good at being force sensitive, she also just didn't have any personality flaws also. So it mm-hmm. just, it made it really hard for me to get into her corner throughout yeah. this entire trilogy. Yeah. She's not, a, she's not a character. She's a characterization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, you're right. You can't, you can't empathize with her or sympathize with her. It's just, because you know, once you get to know that about her, that in the next scene, there's really no danger. Right. There's no threat. Yeah. One thing I enjoyed about your book a lot, Alan, in Splinter is when Luke is down and he's fighting Vader and he's pinned and Leia picks up the saber and, you know, she starts, you know, going at Vader. Because th- at this point, you've really never seen Leia hold a weapon like this. Sure. And, you know, you've got, like you made the comment earlier, this is the kind of weapon... <laughs> whoever wields it, you're like, oh man, these fingers are gone. These ankles are gone. They're, they're cutting their own arm off. But it was, it was cool to see how you coupled it with the Kyber enhancing force abilities and just it, it, kind of like this expansion of consciousness. I could buy in that this was an element or at least a point of interaction that I can buy in that Leia can now be at least stronger than just the average novice who picks up a, a very, very elegant weapon, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, well, you, you hope when you're doing a book like that, that whatever comes after, you won't contradict it, you know, too brutally. And in that particular case, that just worked out really well. Uh, also, I'm, you know, I've always liked strong women and always felt they were, you know, underused in film. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just me. I'm not trying to make a social point here. Uh, and all of my professional 
acquaintances, agents, editors, publishers, I'd say 95% of them have been women. So, you know, uh, it just, it just all fits with something I could, you know, do. Yeah. You, you want to see a strong woman? Uh, any of you like metal music? Yeah. Yeah, we'll okay. rock with it. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. You need to look, um, you need to look up a band called Nightwish. Oh, I love Nightwish. You love Nightwish. Okay, I, I had a hunch you might, Bevan. Well, the lead <laughs> singer, aside from the fact that the music is amazing, the lead singer is a Dutch gal named Floor Jansen. Yeah. She's 6'1", wears four-inch heels on stage. Whoa. Crazy. And her nickname by a lot of fans is the, Val, is the Valkyrie. And you, uh, you guys who are obviously left out of this, um, you, you need to watch some Nightwish videos. She's an extraordinary performer and an extraordinary presence, and apparently a really sweet gal. She just transforms when she's on stage, like so many performers. They do. did an epic. Okay, that's that's. Not- no, they did an epic performance of Phantom of the Opera, and she hits those high notes like a badass at the end. It was great. There's a live performance of it you can see of her singing Phantom yeah. of the Opera. Yeah, you're talking about the bit she did on a show called Best of Zangers with a Dutch, a Dutch singer named Hank Port. Yeah. Uh, and yes, it is quite. It is quite phenomenal. It's just the, just an art, you know, one little bit from the film, but uh, it's it's quite extraordinary. It's funny to see her trying to play the ingenue, you know, the threatened ingenue in the film when she's towering over him. Yeah. But uh, still, well, uh, there's there's a there's a great shot of her. It looks she looks like Maleficent's sister in one shot. It's just anyway, we could go on and on about that, and I've I've fanboyed enough. So. <laughs> it's great. I mean, great. you know what I'm always amazed at too is that like. The character of Leia, you know, Carrie Fisher is not a tall person. And yet the way they shot her and her own acting ability, like I, I always thought she had total command of, of every single scene she was mm-hmm. in. And that just speaks to her acting ability. That speaks to George Lucas's way of directing, though, too, is that he wanted to give you a uh, uh, give each character their their equal due. And, and, and he's able to make her seem powerful in, in a scene where she's surrounded by people that, that are quite taller than her, you know? So it's, it's, it's wondrous in that way. Um, Alan, I wonder if, yeah, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, just as long as we're on the subject, as long as I'm on the subject, Jansen would make a wonderful Star Wars character. Oh yeah, she if would. She, she would be. Yeah. She'd have to be dark her, side. She'd be dark side though. I want some more dark side. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Go ahead guys. Now that I've been, now that we've both intrigued you with, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it goes it goes back to the point, Alan, of like, I, you know, I, I feel like with female strong characters, they don't always have to be good guys. And I, I was very excited for Captain Phasma to have some badass moments of being like the head stormtrooper female. And I felt like sure. they, they underused her so much. And I and she's yeah, such a great cool. actress. I'm blanking on her name right now. Brianna Tarth, um, who was Captain Phasma. Uh, Gwendolyn Christie. Gwendolyn Christie. Gwendolyn Christie. Yeah, like you, I, I just, I feel like maybe Disney is afraid to do females properly on the dark, if they are on the dark side of the force because they want to be, you know, positive role model, models for females. And like, that's all well and good, but a lot of your audience is not children for Star Wars. And I don't see a harm in creating more uh, unique female characters that are dark side. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I mentioned Maleficent already. Disney's been doing dark female characters since the start of Disney. Yeah. So it doesn't make any sense. But they have to be integrated into the story. 
they have to be realistic characters. They have to be characters who are not just thrown in there for a political reason. Yeah. If they are like Captain Phasma, who should have had that damn helmet off once in a while, uh, so we could see her face and expressions. Yeah. Uh, then that's great. I think that would be ter- that that would be terrific, and I think it's necessary. But you need to do it so that you avoid these, you know, silly political social arguments back and forth. If it's a character who fits, uh, like Maz Kanata, yeah. You know, after all, is a female character who just also seems to have disappeared. Uh, then it's great. Then it would be wonderful. And there's no reason why you can't do that. Mm-hmm. I felt really bad for Laura Dern in episode eight because she's a wonderful actress. She was like a real nice gal, but I had already mentioned uh, uh, Sam, not Worthington, Sam Elliott being miscast in the film. And I felt that Laura Dern was miscast in that role. You needed somebody badass who looked the part there, not somebody soft. And, you know, it's just, I, I, I love her and I love her. I love her acting, but she was wrong for that role. Of course, it wouldn't have hurt if the role had been written a little more logically and, and realistically. But yeah. Alan, I, I wonder if we can uh, have a, a larger macro question for you. Um, you know, you've written so many original novels. You've written so many adaptations. You know, I, I'm a screenwriter myself, and I find myself going back to to themes and ideas a lot in my writing. I wonder if if you're aware of like specific Alan Dean Foster signatures that that you find in a lot of your books. You know, nobody's ever asked me that hey. before. I got oh. <laughs> you know, half a century of writing, half a century of, of scribbling, and nobody's actually asked me that. <laughs> this is my mark. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's a tough one um, because I don't look at my own work mm. that way. Okay. Like you look at Spielberg and, you know, if he's got a signature shot, it's the camera zooming in on a character while the character turns to look in the camera's direction. Yes. You see that in almost every one of his films. Uh, it works. It's fine. But you could say that's a Spielberg signature shot. Uh, I don't know. If, if I have anything, it would be the fact that characters tend to be – I have to really be careful and not make my characters uh, too cynical. Mm. Mm. And that will get away from me sometimes because I have a kind of jaundiced view of humanity. I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist. And I will, you know, I'll be writing something and it will occur to me to have a character say something like, well, this isn't going to work because they're going to blow the planet up tomorrow anyway, kind of thing. And I have to be careful not to do that. So, you know, if I had some kind of signature, you just find that with many characters now that I think about it, scattered throughout a lot of my books, alien as well as human. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's the way you look at, the way you look at the cosmos. I don't know if you remember, um, let's see, I guess it was at Annie Hall. I guess it was in Annie Hall. And you know, young Woody Allen is sitting in his rocking chair in a, in a corner, staring into the corner. And his mother says, well, why don't you go out and play? It's such a nice day. He says, it doesn't matter. So I just found out that the universe is, is collapsing on itself and everything's going to end anyway. So what's the point? Mm. That's kind of an ultimate cynical view. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to be billions of years down the line, but you know, ah, so what? It's all going to go away anyway. Uh, if, you, if you look at the galaxy, if you look at the universe that way, then you tend to adopt kind of a cynical uh, train of you know, train of thought or, or viewpoint. I mean, I look at everything's happening around me today 
And then you go back, say, 2,000 years, and the same stuff was happening. <laughs> it's just lower tech. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and it's kind of like, well, you know, this is nothing new. And people, oh, it's the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. It's just another incident. For good or for bad, it's just another incident. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, the Black Plague killed, what was it, 40% of the population of Europe. If you had that happen today, you'd have 250 million dead people in Europe. Yeah. Um, or the coronavirus, if you look at it from that perspective, not so bad, maybe. Mm -hmm. But people have, most people have no sense of history or knowledge of history. They have no perspective on time. And um, that's a long way away from your question. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, yet, I keep plugging away with a positive attitude Yeah. because there's so many dystopias out there in fiction. I just don't write dystopias. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want to sit there. And they say that a creative person, if you look at their face, you can, uh, you can see what they're thinking about what they're creating. And I know if you set up cameras, just set them up and focused on writers at their computer or typewriter or whatever, you would see the entire story go th through the expressions in the writer's face. Mm -hmm. I know I'm like that. My wife can tell, Joanne can tell when I go in the house. She can tell whether I'm working on an upbeat story or downbeat story. I say, I don't write dystopias, but I've written alien books where everybody dies. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, you can tell. So there's enough dystopias out there. I'm really not interested in writing. I'm really not interested in writing that. I'm not interested in writing a fantasy where the main character is, you know, a, a disgruntled, psychotic, transgender person who murders everybody they can in the book, including people who help them. However good the rest of the book is and however good the writing is, I'm personally, I'm just not interested yeah. in that. Absolutely. That's fair. That's fair. Well, we Love probably it. should have this wrap this up soon. Uh, Jason, Peter, do you want to have a follow up end question, bookmark question? Um, yeah, Alan. I mean, your 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 knowledge of uh, not only the genre is vast. If you were given the reins, you I know, knew this to, was coming. Uh, you know, I, oh yeah. If you were given the reins <laughs> to either helm a standalone Star Wars film, just all by itself. Maybe you have the opportunity to tell your own trilogy or maybe even a show. What would, what would be your pitch? Like, what would you like to explore? Well, the treatment for episode nine is obviously a dead issue. <laughs> so you, you go off in a different direction. I think it would be really interesting to, to find a character like, uh, say, Barris Ophi, who is Luminara Unduli's Padawan, yeah. who is conflicted. Now, we still have dark side, even if the empire is shot, we still have dark side and light side existing in the force. Mm -hmm. You still need to try and find balance in Star Wars between the dark side and the light side. And you need a character. I mean, people wondered this about Rey. They wondered it about Kylo Ren. They're going to go to the dark side. They're going to go to the light side, whatever. But take a character who's had Jedi training and explore her, you know, development through a film. Um, and you have to have a new thread. I mean, the Empire has pretty much had enough resurrections. <laughs> you know, you can't keep bringing the, you know, the Empire back like Dracula. The Empire's done. Yeah. Um, but you could have spinoffs of the Empire. Sure. You know, rogue, rogue military groups. I mean, this is very realistic, actually. It's happened in history. Or rogue industrialists who see a power vacuum. So that gives you your background. And then you have your young you know, maybe a Padawan, maybe it's a Padawan whose Jedi has been killed 
and they're stuck off somewhere and they have to kind of fend for themselves. How would they develop? There's lots of possibilities there. Also, this business about the Jedi being an ascetic order that doesn't have sex and doesn't have relationships, uh, I never got behind that. Mm-hmm. Because if you, if you, I mean, you can do it logically, but if you throw all that out, you have very, a lot less to work with from character development standpoint. So that's what I'd do. Great. I'd pick a, a female Padawan whose Jedi gets killed, and it's like, you know, why am I even bothering with any of this? And you suddenly, you know, now you identify with the character. Well, you need, to, you need to develop your powers and you need to do this because you're a force for good, we hope. Mm-hmm. And uh, suddenly you're invested in the character. Once you're invested in the character, the rest of the story will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As long as it develops reasonably. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. That's great. That's a, that's a great Disney, question. Disney will call tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah. Disney's scrambling right now, except The Mandalorian's doing very well. Do you like The Mandalorian, Alan? Yes, because it's separate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Get away from all of this, you know, mystic stuff, and it's a separate story, and, you know, The Mandalorian is fine. And whoever decided to go in that direction for Disney did the right thing. And uh, it's, it's not all, you know, I don't mean to condemn Disney. I have the same birthday as Mickey Mouse. Um, so I have a soft spot, sorts for Disney. Um, this, Mickey's older than me, but uh, <laughs> and has more money. But <laughs> we, we do we do share a birth date. So, great. Uh, so that's what I. Do. Well, great, for, for me, like I, uh, you know, we've had you on here for over an hour, so I won't ask another question. But I just want to say I really I really liked your uh, Alien Covenant prequel book. I thought it was great. So I don't I don't know what you know, fans are out there complaining about. I, I really enjoyed it. Fans are out there, those who are complaining, and there were other people who liked the book because there's no aliens in it. It's an alien book. There's no aliens. I know, I know. And I did the best I could. And it does. The, the thing I didn't like about writing that was I got really attached. I get really attached to characters who are likable characters. Got attached to the likable characters in Alien Covenant. Knew they were all going to die. Right. I attached to them. So writing a prequel that involves some of those characters, I have to be positive about writing those characters and the story there, even though I know they are all going to die. Yes. That was the hardest thing about writing that prequel book for me. What I wanted to do, I wrote an outline, I wrote a treatment, but it didn't matter, was explore what happens to uh, Peter and the doctor that he ends up killing, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah, David. Between between David, between Prometheus and Alien Covenant, that's what all the fans wanted to see. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Nobody asks me, so yeah, I do what I can. I do what I can in the books, and that's all I can do. Great. Well, Alan, we'll have to have you back on, but in the meantime, where can people find you on the interwebs and social channels? Well, um, Open Road Media, which is one of my publishers, has it maintains a Facebook page. Okay. And people can ask questions on there, and I answer every question myself. Oh, awesome. I have from the very beginning, I have from the very beginning when I had to type letter responses, <laughs> because I feel that's little enough to do for somebody who buys your work. And I have a web page, which is built in ancient HTML, so it's starting to crumble. But there's a lot of information on there about my, his, my personal history and Photos from my travels and long lists of my work, you know, short stories and books and stuff. So there are those two places. Excellent. Nothing for Twitter, uh, Alan. No, nowhere on Twitter, Instagram. 
you know, if you get involved with all this stuff, you don't have time to write. <laughs> this is very true. Very true. Very <laughs> That's true. a good answer. <laughs> just, I just wrote a symphony. And I'd like, you know, like people to hear that. But I really have no way to post it. And I'd never written anything like that before. And uh, but you know, that'll get out there one day too, hopefully. Great. Nice. Well, this has been a pleasure, Alan. Thank, Thank you so much so for much. talking about your journey. Uh, you know, some of the amazing points along the way. And uh, I love how candid you are. I really do. It's great. Great. It's great. You reach a point in your life, if you live long enough, you become history. And at, at this point, it's kind of like, I've, I've got stuff in the book the director should have shot you that I never mentioned before, too. Mm. And it's like, this is history. Um, I try to be tactful, but I'm honest. And so I tried to throw all that stuff in the book. That's great. That is great. No, I'm going to look up that book. That's a great book. We're definitely going to pick it up. Yeah, and can you, please, can you please plug that again, Alan, uh, the release date for that book? Uh, I don't have a release date. It'll be later this year. It's from Centipede Press. Okay. So you can write you can write the publisher and probably and possibly get a release date or at least a general idea of when the book will be out. Fantastic. Fantastic. Great. Excellent. Excellent, Alan. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And this is the, the Rebel in the Rogue podcast, now available on the Electric Owl Now app. Wow, Ow. The Electric <laughs> Owl app. There's some pain in there. <laughs> There's some pain in that app. The Electric Now app. Make sure to check us out there and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and soon to be Instagram. I am Bevan. Yeah. That is Jason Tobias and Commander Peter Holmstrong with Alan Dean Foster. Thank you so much. We out. Under fire and always in trouble. C-3PO and R2-D2. The Star Wars droids. Welcome to the collection of their greatest adventures before Star Wars. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.